He chose us. That's what we're going to talk about this morning from Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Now looking at what, you, what a sermon should be in, 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 in seminary, they teach you, you take a paragraph of thought. And in a sense, I've done that. So what we're doing now is we're just trying to dive deeper into the broader topic of, of what elicits praise to God in the ways that God has blessed us. He chose us. Have you ever noticed that the same benign object can invoke fear in one person and bring refreshment to another person? What do I mean by that? Let me give you an illustration. What are your thoughts about water? I learned to swim when I was very young. My parents, we lived in southern Florida, and my parents, there was lots of pools and the ocean all around, so they they wanted us all to learn to swim very, at a very young age. So for me, a pool brings the idea of refreshment. It doesn't matter really how deep the water is. Once you learn how to swim, you can swim. But to somebody who doesn't know how to swim, water can bring a lot of fear with it. You don't know how to, what, you know, you know that you don't know how to swim. And if you get beyond the, the, the bottom of the pool, if it, it goes deep enough, you can't swim. Well, this morning we're going to find ourselves at the edge of a very deep theological pool. <laughs> For some, you may invoke fear. For others, refreshment. But understand that Paul's intention is that it bring refreshment. This is intended to bring praises to our God. Remember the larger concept that we saw through this, that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then we see in three times to the praise, to his praise, to the praise of his glory, to the praise, to his praise, to his glory, to the praise of his glory. So this is a doctrine that's given to us to result in praise. Now, some people may wonder, why teach on such a doctrine? Isn't doc, aren't doctrines like this divisive, especially election? I have been part of churches that refuse to teach on election at all because it can be divisive. But it doesn't have to be. It's not inherently in, in divisive. But some of you might be wondering, why teach on something like this? Why teach on that? Because the text takes us there. That's the beauty of verse-by-verse expository preaching. Pastors and congregations cannot avoid texts they don't like. I like this text. (laughs) But I probably didn't when I was first saved. I think it was R.C. Sproul that said, we're all born again as Arminians. Meaning we think we contribute something to our salvation. We all are there. But election, which we're going to talk about, is is very biblical. And it's a text, it's a doctrine that we need to know because it elicits our praise to God. J.C. Ryle, the, the, the faithful English pastor of the late 1800s, noted this about Election. He says, no doctrine of scripture perhaps has suffered so much damage 
from the erroneous conceptions of foes and the incorrect descriptions of friends as that which is now before us. A lot, of, a lot of damage to this doctrine has been done because foes misunderstand it and friends misunderstand it. And, and contrary to popular opinion, the doctrine of election is good for us. Paul puts it front and center. That's what's so, so awesome about this. He doesn't hide doctrine in the sixth chapter. He puts it in the first chapter in the fourth verse, and there's, there's, it's not just one word. It, it's full of God's action, of what God has done to bless his people. John Calvin noted this about election. He said, no doctrine is more useful, provided it be handled in the proper and cautious manner of which Paul gives us an example when he presents it as an illustration of the infinite goodness of God and employs it as an excitement to gratitude. Election is, is designed to help you understand the infinite goodness of God. How is it that some think it a hateful doctrine? Because they misunderstand a good number of things. Think of, the elect, think of election, the doctrine of election, like one of those water blobs that you might see on a, at a youth camp. You've seen some, at least some videos of them. The water blob sits there in the lake. Someone sits on the end of the blob. And then one or more people jump off a tower onto the blob, launching the person at the other end way up in the air and into the lake. Now, that may not sound like fun to you. But there's a good number that it would. But the point is, I want you to think of the Apostle Paul as the guy on the tower. And he's going to jump down onto that blob. Election is that blob. All right. And he's going to force you. He's going to launch you into praise to God. That's what election is designed to do. It's not, it's not made to raise the hairs on the back of your head. It's not made to divide churches. And it's not made for a great number of things, but it is made, it is, it is told to us, is a better way to say it. We are told about this, we are taught this to elicit our praise to God. Now up to this point, Paul has, has just given us a general statement. That God the Father, the Lord of our Jesus Christ, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's just a general statement of his blessings. We're going to launch into some specifics, and election is that very first specific. So election is a doctrine you need to know to fuel your praise of God. It'll do more than that, but, but that's the, the main application point. So this morning, we're going to see four facets of election that Paul gives us about the doctrine of election that will launch us into heights of praise to God. Facet one right? is really the essence of election. And let me just back up and let's just read the text together. And I'm, um, to, to keep it all together, let's just read verses 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. 
by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. For an administration of the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who, have, who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So the first facet of election that results in the praise of his glory is simply the fact that he chose you. God chose you. It's the essence of of election is that he chose you. Paul is really clear. And it's amazing to me how many scholars and commentators muddy what is very clear. And, and there are just endless books that make this doctrine more confusing than it should be. God chose you. And, and he begins by saying, just as... Look at verse 4, just as. That's, that's just a, a phrase that leads into from the, from the general blessings to specific blessings. Just as he chose you. Now, what does it mean to choose? Now, by definition, uh, to choose implies you deciding one thing over another thing. It, this is an election, not like an election where you, you go uh, vote for a president and the, whoever, whichever candidate gets the greatest number of votes, uh, electoral votes, wins the um, nomination from that state. Uh, this is solely some, that something God does. When people think of election, they distort it sometimes. They begin to think, that it's something like a ballot. And I have seen an actual gospel tract that's made out this way. It says, God votes for you, check mark. Satan votes against you, check mark. You decide the bottom of it. Meaning, they're trying to elicit you to, they're saying, God decided one way, Satan decided another way. You cast the deciding vote. I'm not making that up. That's an actual gospel tract. That goes against what is being said here with the whole idea of election. God chose you. The, the word that Paul uses here means to choose or select. Right? There's things in front of you. You reach out and select one or more of what is in front of you. As one commentator explains, it, it implies the taking of a smaller number out of a larger number. That's implicit with the meaning of the word election. Let me give you examples. Israel was chosen to be God's people. God didn't choose all the nations. He chose 
Israel and not because Israel offered him anything in particular. He actually had to create that nation before it would be a nation. The, the 12 were chosen to be apostles while the other disciples were not. Again, a selection. Some were chosen for salvation while others were not. And that's the, that's the controversial part. But, but the reality is that's a truth. That there are some selected for salvation while others are not. Even the Arminians would agree with that. They just put the choice in the humans, on the human side. The Arminians would say that, that people are free to decide to choose Christ. But we know that all are not saved. So therefore, somebody's deciding. The question is, is who is it? Paul says, God chose you. Again, it's, it's clear, but it can be muddied because of our thinking. Now, it's interesting that the, the verb form that Paul uses here, it, 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 um, it tells us a lot more about the choice than the English word. The, the verb kind of dominates. The verb, God chose you, that word choose dominates all the rest that's going to come after that. If God hadn't chosen us, all the rest of the blessings wouldn't have flown from that. So it's the fountainhead from which all the other blessings flow to us. The form of the verb actually indicates that this is a past action. This isn't something God is doing. It's done in the past. He chose you. And the form also indicates that the action was performed on behalf of the one doing the action. Greek has some interesting nuances that English doesn't have with its verbs. So this particular verb indicates that God's choice was made for himself. Now, when you hear that, you might think, well, that sounds a little selfish, doesn't it? I mean, you think of what things that you do for yourself. And I think of the things that I do for myself. And we do a lot of things for ourselves, don't we? And some of those things, maybe a lot of those things, are selfish. We must banish the idea of, of there being any sin in God. God can do something for himself without a hint or trace of sin. Understand, we go back to the, when there's difficult concepts, we've got to go back to the clear. And here the clear is like 1 John 1, 5, which says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Not a trace of sin. And one commentator noted this. He says that unless, or he says, until we are willing to acknowledge that there is no possibility that God can sin against humanity, we will struggle with election. We must acknowledge that God can do anything he wants to us, and it would be just and right. And until we get to that place, you're going to struggle with election. You are putting yourself, whether you realize it or not, in a judgment seat above God and judging God's actions. When scripture is very clear that everything that God does is just and right. So going back to the word, he chose us. The fact that he chose a smaller group out of a larger group is what Paul is saying. He chose us for himself. Again, emphasizing the fact that there is nothing outside of him 
that induced him to make that choice. So what we're talking about here is not just election, but it's unconditional election. It's unconditioned by anything outside of God. He chose for his own reasons. And it's interesting that Paul puts such a doctrine out here. He doesn't give a defense for it. He just states it. It's not an argument. It's a statement of fact. And, and it's clear. God chose. Now, just to re-emphasize basic grammar. He chose us. The action is choosing. It's in the past. It's done. Whoever is doing that choosing is doing it for himself. I mean, so you have the, the predicate. You have the person doing the action. You, which is very clearly God. God chose us. This is a very simple, though profound statement. God the Father made a choice to bring to himself all those who would ever come to him. God is the one who does the action. Who is the choosing? Who is, who's been chosen? It's the us. God chose us. We're the, we're the recipients of his, of his actions, of his choosing. Now, who are the us? Well, when Paul wrote this, it was the believers in the city of Ephesus. And notice he doesn't say you. That would have been teaching that only the Ephesians were elect. Paul includes himself. And he says he chose us. So it's not just Paul and the Ephesians. It's written to the larger church. So this is inclusive of all who would ever believe in Jesus Christ. Now, some commentators and pastors try to make the pronoun here refer to the church in general. They say, they say when, when Paul says we, that, that he chose us, that, that Paul's referring to the church in general and not to specific individuals. Now, that's typically done to try to make a case that because people can't avoid election. So they have to redefine what election means in order to support their theology that man has some, some choice in this. Paul's very clearly saying that God chose us. There is an individual aspect to this. Yes, he's, he is writing this letter to the church. And Paul will go back and forth between a collective and an individual sense. But it is very clearly talking about an individualist, uh, individual scenario here. An individual application of a greater truth. I guess one way to see this clearly is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. No, no, nobody's making the case that the church has faith in general. Maybe the Catholics, maybe in some sense, do this. But, but no right-minded evangelical church says that, that Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 is written to the church collectively, that somehow the church has faith and the church is saved. No, individuals have faith and individuals are saved and added to the church. So, two in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul is saying God chose us, that us is an individualistic us. He knew each person he chose. Right? Again, this is clear, but it can get muddied by commentators. It can get muddied by the conflicts that rage in our hearts sometimes as we try to understand these things. 
We are the recipients of God's choice. It's not a corporate election. This is an individual election. So God chose us. Now, that God, that God elected to save some and not others shouldn't surprise us because it's consistent with his actions throughout history, the, the known history of the world. God chose to create Adam and Eve. Why didn't he create another person? He chose to create Adam and Eve. He could have created a lot more. He created Adam and Eve. God chose Abraham and not Abraham's father. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. God chose Jacob, not Esau. God chose Israel, not the other nations. God chose David to be the anointed king of Israel, not others. God chose Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and you can list the prophets. He chose those prophets and not other people. Time and time again, God chooses a smaller group out of a larger group. Sometimes it's like a nation to be representative for him. Sometimes it's to do a special action like David or the prophets. It was to to carry out a special ministry. They were selected for that or the apostles. But we should not be surprised that God selects for salvation a smaller group out of a larger group. Now, God's election shouldn't surprise us at all because it's consistent with his sovereignty. You could do a whole message on the Lord's sovereignty, but just, but just let me give you a few verses just to remind us of this. When David is praising Yahweh in the temple, 1 Chronicles uh, 29, uh, 12, and he's um, not in, the, in Solomon's temple, but this would be praising him uh, there in the, in the tabernacle. He says, both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Psalm 103, verse 19. Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 115, 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He is so pleased. In this case, he's so pleased to draw the elect to himself. Even in the context, you may have, you may have noticed this. Look at verse 11. In him... We have also been made an inheritance, having been predestined, look at that, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's not a single thing that's outside God's sovereignty, and that includes salvation. Anybody who is ever saved, has ever been saved, is only saved because God chose them. They don't get there some other way. They don't get there by their own power, their own strength, their own wisdom. This is the first facet we really just need to to grapple with and wrestle with. And it's God's election. God chose you. Let me just pause a minute to say, why do people struggle with this? Well, they struggle with this because they think that it's unjust. It's not fair. It's not fair. But when they do this, they think that they are equal with God's wisdom And they think that they're deserving of fairness or that somebody else is deserving of fairness. Well, the reality is, if God was fair, we would all be judged. God would be just if he didn't save anybody. If he chose to create us, let us fall into sin, 
and then judge us at the end and save no one, he would be just. That God saves some out of the larger number is no injustice with God. But our hearts tell us otherwise. We say, that's not fair. Read Romans 9 and 10 sometime. Why does the potter, why did the potter make me this way? And Paul will say, who are you, oh man? It's probably the wrong question. Who are you? So understand that God chose you is, is a key doctrine that's very clearly taught in Scripture. Let's look at the second facet. The sphere, what I call the sphere of election. This is that God chose you in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him. The phrase in him refers to in Christ. What does this refer to? It refers to the sphere of our election. And you say, what does the sphere of our election mean? It refers to our union with Christ. And this is a union that's going to happen in the future. God the Father will choose us in Christ, although we're mystically connected with him, but we are not yet united with him until we believe. Now, some misunderstand this, what, what is being said here. And they're saying, yes, God chose. Election is plain from scripture. But you see, in Christ, that refers to a person's actually believing in Christ. And God knows everything and he looks down the corridors of time. And he sees people believing. He knows who will believe. And he selects those people. That's their idea of election. That's their idea of foreknowledge, which is a twisting of foreknowledge. Uh, Foreknowledge is to know something beforehand. What you have to understand is God does know the end from the beginning. But you know the reason that he knows the end from the beginning? Because he's determined everything ahead of time. God doesn't have to look down the corridors of time to know what's going to come. He's already made a decision. So things come about because of God's predetermined plan. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. So this is referring to the fact that that there would be no election if it were not for Christ. There'd be no salvation if it were not for Christ. The, The sphere of our election is in Christ as our Redeemer and our Savior. The whole, this whole passage from verses, from verse three to verse 14 emphasizes that. Just as we just look at the broader context, verse three, in Christ, verse four, in him, verse six, in the beloved, Um, in verse seven, in him, Uh, in in verse nine, or I might say in whom in some of your translations, but it's referring to Christ. Verse nine, in him, verse 10, in Christ, verse 11, in him, verse 12, in Christ, verse 13, two times, in him, in him. Everything flows around Christ. And flows through Christ to us. But here the emphasis is is that sphere. The fact that the Father chose us. Chose us in Him. One commentator put it this way. The idea is that that election has its ground in Christ. In the sense that apart from Christ. And without respect to His special revelation to us. Special relation to us. 
and his foreseen work, there would be no election of us. Let me read that again. The idea is that election has its ground in Christ in the sense that apart from Christ and without respect to his special relation to us and his foreseen work, there would be no election of us. And God chooses us simply because he places us in Christ, not because of anything we'll do or how we will respond to him later. So if I could just pause for a minute and just appeal to those of you in this room who are not yet in Christ. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans 10 verses 9 to 13. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes leading to righteousness And with a mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes upon him will will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches to all who call upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You might think, is this really the same author that wrote Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4? That says God chose you? Yes. It's the same author. You see, part of the struggle with election is, is we don't see how it aligns with free will or what we call free will. We must understand that there is no such thing as free will. Now, theologically, a person is born bound to sin. We are all born as, sin, as slaves to sin. And if you're saved, God purchased you out of the slave market of sin and you are now his You are now slaves of Christ, slaves of God. But what people mean by free will is not usually that. It's it's that they make our own choices. We do make our own choices. When you go to the ice cream shop, you can choose any flavor you want. Your will's not bound to choose one or the other. Maybe your conscience is because you're trying not to have so many calories. But you can make that decision yourself. So that's what people mean. Well, I'm free to choose. And, and when I believed in Christ, I, I made that decision too. And so we're trying to wrestle with the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. But you understand that when God chose us, it, it's not with the idea that he, that, that he um, draws us to himself against our will. But that he so changes our will that we want to choose him. And yes, there's the ability to make choices here on earth. We, we recognize that. But it's, it's not that. And there are some people who choose to follow Christ who are not the elect. They're part of the church. Might even have some here today. Yeah. They, they make a profession to follow Christ. But they haven't exercised true saving faith in him. And, and it, here's the mystery is that God calls to all, to everyone, to repent and believe. That's your responsibility. You are not to sit back and think and try to figure out whether you're elect. Did God elect me? I've seen people twist themselves in knots trying to figure this out. It's, it's really the wrong question. Do you believe? Do you pray to God? Do you read his word? Do you continue in the means of grace? Reading his word and praying don't contribute to your salvation. 
But there are means of grace that a true believer is going to pursue. If those things aren't in your life, then you're not, you're not at this stage redeemed. And if you die in that, then, then we can definitely say you're not part of the elect. But here's the mystery that God says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. I can preach that and I can plead with you with all the earnestness of God and of the Apostle Paul and at the same time say God has chosen everyone who will believe. These things are not at odds in the mind of God. He has not explained them to us. The Bible doesn't explain it to us, but we must hold on to both truths. There are some Calvinists who, who just say God is sovereign. And they neglect the responsibility of man to believe. They don't call upon, they don't call people to believe in Christ. You also have others on the other side that say, well, man is ultimately sovereign. Man has the final choice. Men and women choose Christ. That's not right either. We must hold on to both these truths tightly because they're both taught in Scripture and you say, well, well, pastor, how can these things be so? I can say, I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But they are both true. So we don't jettison one truth or another truth just because we can't reconcile them in our mind. Because then, then we put ourselves in the place of judge and not others and not, um, and not God. Let, let the scriptures judge us, not us the scriptures. So don't, don't wait to believe until you know whether you're elect or not. You'll, you'll never believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you continue in that belief, then you are elect. It's very clear. And that brings praise. As you know, it's not of yourself. This is so true in people's lives who lived a very rebellious life. And you were just going your own way. And all of a sudden, God did what? He plucked you out. You, didn't, you weren't trying to find God. You weren't trying to seek him. Maybe there wasn't anybody else in your family who was saved to even tell you about Christ. But, but somehow, someone told you the gospel and you believed. And he just plucked you out. And you might be the only one saved in your own family. And you might say, why me? And again, I have to say, I don't know, except that in God's wisdom, it brings him glory to save you. And, and don't let that give you pride either, because usually it's, it's those who are the least likely to do anything for his kingdom that he selects, because that brings him the most glory. There are a few mighty, a few noble, a few wealthy, but most of us, right? You look at us and you say, ah, He'd never amount to anything. But God uses people like that for his glory. He, he loves to do that. Well, let's look at the third truth, the third facet. And that is the timing of the election. God chose you before the foundation of the world. This is, this is clear. We don't have to spend a lot of time on it. God made this choice before the foundation of the world. Why does Paul say this? To emphasize the fact that it had nothing to do with you. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> It was done before creation. Creation, it's not like God decided to create and then all of a sudden, oh yeah, there's a sin problem. Now I've got to figure out what's going on here. No, God knew all that when he created. He knew what was going to happen. And some might say, well, 
Why did God create a world with pain, with sin? He chose to create a world like that because it result in his glory. And you would never experience his grace in a perfect world. You wouldn't need his grace. If everything were perfect, you wouldn't know anything about God's grace. So in God's wisdom, he chose to create a world that was good. And humanity chose to rebel. Satan chose to rebel and introduce a lot of evil. God could have stopped that if he wanted to, but he chose not to. So that we might be objects of his grace to the praise of his glory. Listen to J.C. Rowell explain the true doctrine of election. He says this, the true doctrine of election, I believe to be as follows. God has been pleased from all eternity to choose certain men and women out of mankind, whom by his counsel secret to us, he has decreed to save by Jesus Christ. None are finally saved except those who are thus chosen. Hence the scripture gives to God's people in several places, the names of God's elect and the choice or the appointment of them to eternal life is called God's election. And this isn't a doctrine that's just taught in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It's taught in a lot of different places. And when you embrace it, you begin to see that. Matthew 24, verse 22, speaking of the great tribulation. Here, Jesus says, Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Mark 13, 22. Jesus says, And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there. Do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, though it's not, if possible, the elect. Jesus believes in the elect. He knows that. Luke 18, 7, in the parable about continuing, uh, persevering in prayer, Jesus says this, Now will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? Of course he'll bring about justice for his elect. In Acts 13, 48, when Paul and Barnabas were preaching the gospel in Poseidon Antioch, uh, we're told this, and when the Gentiles heard this, that is that the gospel was for the Gentiles as well, and they heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. God didn't look down the quarters of time to see who would believe and then appoint them. God appointed them to eternal life and they believed. Again, not violating their wills, but so changing their wills that they, they chose him. How does that happen? Regeneration. Regeneration. And there's a great debate over what happens first, faith or regeneration, belief or regeneration. Well, I think Paul answers that very clearly, though not in those words, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were what? Semi-dead? You were um, full of cancer and almost dead. He says what? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Why does he choose the word dead? Because a dead person doesn't respond. A dead person doesn't initiate anything. God must make you alive. 
to think about when Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. He said, Lazarus, come forth. He made a decision. There were other dead people in that, in that tomb. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And what do you think Lazarus said, was thinking? We're not told. So this is all Mark's opinion. Take it for what it is. Do you think he said, oh, I was sleeping so good. I don't want to come out. No, he wanted to come out. He did. Jesus called. Lazarus responded. It's a good illustration of what he does for us spiritually. He changes. He makes us alive to respond to his will. And we want to respond that way. Election is taught in so many places. Romans in several places. Romans 8, 29 and 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And by the way, don't think that we love God first because scripture says God loved us and therefore we love him. God is the initiator, not man. But he says that God works all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's a great chain there. But it's God doing the work, his selection, his actions. Uh, Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So if God justifies you because he's elected you, no one can bring a charge that's ever going to get you thrown out of heaven because you're perfect in him. Romans 8, I mean, Romans 11 verses 5 to 7. In this way, then, at the present time, a remnant, there is a remnant according to God's gracious choice has, has also come to be. But if it is by grace, it is no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but the chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened. The chosen obtained it. God's choice. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of either the witness about our Lord or me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the, God, for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. His decision, his action. And if you had not been elected, you would not have been called. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And then the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Just in the introduction of his letter, he says, To those who reside as exiles, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And someone might say, well, well no, you see there, it's according to the foreknowledge. You're, uh, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. But there's a misunderstanding that foreknowledge. God isn't, isn't looking down the quarters of time to see what's going to happen and then choose that person. No, this, this, fore, 
this foreknowledge is God knowing someone beforehand. It actually speaks of an intimate relationship. That word know. Man knows his wife. Right? So it's, it's, the, it's the idea of an intimate relationship. God foreknew you and chose you. If you're in Christ, God chose you. That's the only reason that you're saved. So we have the essence of election. God chose you. The sphere of election, that God chose you in Christ. And the timing of the election is before the foundation of the world. The fourth facet that we're going to see from this verse is that God chose you to be holy and blameless before him in love. It reveals the purpose. What's the purpose of election? Well, the purpose is that you would be holy to make you holy and blameless before him in love. This is the purpose of election. This is a statement about being completed in Christ without sin, without stain. The two words that he, that he uses are very strategic. Holy, it looks at it from more, from more of a positive statement. Blameless looks at it from more of the negative side. So on the positive side, God elected believers in Christ before the foundation of the world to make them holy. To be holy is to be totally set apart unto God. There's not anything that is contrary to God. To be holy is to be fully in compliance with God's law and his God's character. Meaning you, on the inside and the outside, you are in complete conformity with the law of God. Now, there's only one person who has ever done that in reality, and that's Jesus Christ, our Lord. He fully obeyed God. And through faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father gives the believer the righteousness of Christ. So it's a positional standing that we have now. Even though our lives, in a practice sense, we know that we don't have that this kind of holiness right now in our, in, the, in, the, in our practice of our everyday lives. And then he adds this word, he adds blameless. That's kind of the viewed from the negative standpoint. It's not a negative, but just viewed from the negative side, meaning you haven't, you haven't violated the law. There's nothing within you that has broken the law. Not only have you fulfilled it, but you also haven't broken it. So these things work together. To be blameless is to be without blame or blemish. So sacrifices in the Old Testament when they were given, a lamb was to be without blemish, without fault, had to be perfect. This, this word is used to speak of Jesus Christ himself, his sacrifice. He had to be without blemish, without any stain of sin in order to be the sacrifice for God's people. And these two terms kind of go together to strengthen the whole idea of what God is doing. And here I'll just read from uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, the two terms taken together mean an essential purity or state of health or wholeness. They mean a true and real life being without anything in any way detracting a perfect harmony with every part fulfilling the function for which it was designed. In perfect harmony, everything works together. Perfect harmony. This is holiness and blamelessness and perfect harmony. And notice that Paul says before him. You're holy and blameless before him. Before him. That's, this is the judge of all the earth who knows everything that there is. He's the one that the psalmist in Psalm 130 says, Oh Lord, if, if you mark our iniquity, if you track them, oh Lord, who can stand before you? And the answer is no one. But here we're told that the purpose of election is that God would take us and make us holy and blameless before him. 
No stain of sin. And the idea of before him implies that we're in sweet communion with him. This isn't like you just being kind of in heaven and you're off in some, you know, sphere somewhere, some room somewhere that's your own. No, you have intimate face-to-face communion with God in the same way that Moses did or Abraham did. That, this is sweet. This is what God is drawing us to. Now, now, is this holiness and blamelessness before him? Is this positional right now? Or is it speaking of in our ultimate, our practice? Well, there, there, are, there are faithful expositors who land on different places. So here's MacArthur's explanation. He, MacArthur leans more to the side that is speaking positionally. He says, obviously, Paul is talking about our position and not our practice. We know that in our living, we are far from the holy standard and far from being blameless. Yet in him, Paul said, in him said, and Paul said in another place that we've been made complete. In him, we've been made complete. All that God is, we become in Jesus Christ. That is why salvation is secure. We have Christ perfect righteousness. Our practice can and does fall short, but our position can never fall short because it is exactly the same holy and blameless position before God that Christ has. Unquote. I agree. Amen. It certainly does speak of our positional perfection in Christ, but I do think it implies more than that. What is the purpose of election? Just that we would be positionally holy and blameless Before him in love? I think Paul is indicating the ultimate, the ultimate goal, the ultimate purpose of God is not just to make us positionally perfect. That's true. We're made positionally perfect by faith in Jesus Christ. But here I do think that Paul is, is, and really the Holy Spirit is helping us to see the end game. Where are we going? Where is God taking this? And this is the ultimate goal that we would be holy and blameless before him. And and other commentators, again, faithful, agree with this. Listen to Lloyd-Jones explain this. God is absolute light and glory and perfection. He is absolutely pure without any suspicion of alloy or any admixture. And and, And the astounding thing that we are told here is that God has chosen us in Christ to become like himself. These words holy and blameless are used of him. And he continues, that is his plan and purpose for us. That is our destiny to be like God, holy and without blemish. We won't be God, but we're going to be like God, holy and without blemish. That's the purpose of election. And notice he ends it with in love. Now, it is very difficult to know whether the word in love, the phrase in love, belongs with verse 5 or it belongs with verse 4. Depending on which Bible you have, you'll see it both ways. Remember that the verse numbers were added later. So that's, the verse numbers aren't inspired. So sometimes the verse numbers and even chapter numbers uh, disrupt the natural flow of the text. And that's, this is one of those cases here where it, it might do that. So is Paul saying... That God chose us in love. Well, he could be saying that. And that is theologically true. No one is chosen outside of God's love. But the word he chose and in love are so far separated grammatically, it makes it a very difficult case to make. Is Paul saying that 
if you take it with verse 5, that in love he predestined us. Well, you could say that. But it is a bit redundant. Because if God predestined you, the, the very fact that he predestined you to be adopted as sons implies that he what? Loved you. So it seems best to take in love as part of the phrase talking about the purpose of election. And it is, it is a difficult case and it's not a major, um, a major deal because all three views are theologically true. And all three could work grammatically, so it is difficult to decide. But if you understand that, that love is the ultimate fulfillment of what? The law. Jesus said that. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your own mind, all your soul, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you're holy and blameless before him in love. Your love is perfect. Your love for God is perfect. Your love for others is perfect. So it, it does dovetail well with the idea of the, that the Father has chosen us to be perfected in his love. Um, again, I'll just listen, just listen to Lloyd-Jones. The whole object of the law is love first, your relationship to God, and then your relationship to fellow, your fellow men. It is all a matter of love. So we are to be holy and blameless before him in love, loving God, loving our fellow man, loving the law of God, delighting in it, and not merely conforming mechanically to a moral pattern. The apostles' teaching is that the ultimate and the ultimate end and object of God's choice of us, of our election, is that we should be become people of that character. Of course, we do not attain to that perfection in this life and world. That is the ultimate goal. The will of God for us is absolute perfection. And we who are Christians shall stand before him ultimately, faultless and blameless, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. No one will be able to bring a charge against us. We shall be like our Lord. But let us not forget that while we only attain unto it in the perfection of the next world, it has started in this world. The principle is in us here and now. The seed has been planted in us already. Now I want to, to return to a statement that I made from John Calvin in the, in, near the beginning of the message. He said this, No doctrine is more useful, provided it be handled in the proper and cautious manner of which Paul gives us an example. That it's an illustration of the infinite goodness of God. And it is to be an excitement to gratitude. How can we mishandle this doctrine? I've already mentioned a few. But one is to buck against it. To refuse to accept it. You've got to wrestle with the word of God and submit yourself to it. You do not have to listen to my explanation of it. You've got to wrestle with the text and submit to it. Secondly, we can mishandle the doctrine... By letting it overshadow scriptures that speak of man's responsibility. And I, I explained this a bit earlier, but I want to reiterate. And here, just think, I just want to read a statement from J.C. Ryle. He says, the Bible never says that sinners miss heaven because they are not elect, but because they neglect the great salvation and because they will not repent and believe. The last judgment will, be abund- will abundantly prove that it is not the want of God's election so much as laziness, the love of sin, unbelief, and unwillingness to come to Christ, which ruins the souls that are lost. There is no one who wants to come to Christ that God says, no, you're not part of the elect. Doesn't happen. Banish that idea from your, from your head. 
All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So let, don't let election chase out man's responsibility. Keep them together. Another way we can mishandle this doctrine is to let it overshadow scriptures that speak of the necessity to proclaim the free offer of salvation to every believer. We are called to proclaim the, the gospel, which saves freely to everyone. We're to proclaim that to everyone. That's the mandate of scripture. We are called to proclaim the name of Christ to those around us. Acts, just think about Acts 17, 30 and 31. Here, Paul, the same guy that wrote Ephesians about election. He says this, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent. Everyone everywhere is comprehensive, should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has determined, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. And then here, Paul wasn't just like, he wasn't just a a theologian in the dry sense. Paul was a pleader. Though he fully believed in election, he pled with people to believe. Just, just think, when he, just, just hear the passion in this. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 20 and 21, he says, So then we are ambassadors for Christ as God is pleading through us. He actually uses the word pleading. God pleading? Paul pleads because God pleads. God pleads? Yes, God, God does plead with, with sinners. Jesus even said it. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. If, if only, if only you would have repented. Paul says, he says, we beg you. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled with God. So if your understanding of election causes you to be dispassionate and uncaring about the lost, you have misunderstood election. We are to have a soft and tender heart toward the lost and plead with them to know Christ and believe in him. We can also misunderstand election if we let it fill us with apathy and lethargy. Not only to evangelize, but to pursue spiritual growth. You say, Pastor, I'm going to be holy and blameless before him in love. God's decided it, so it's going to happen. I don't really have to do too much, do I? No, because God has not only ordained the end, he's ordained the means. And the means means that you, you have to participate in his grace. You read his word, you study his word, you trust him, you persevere. He will uphold you through that, but you are called, you are called to follow him and trust him in that. Anyone who, who says that, well, I, I must be elect, therefore, therefore I don't really have to do too much has totally misunderstood it. And I question whether they're even saved. Um, Because someone who is saved is going to want to pursue holiness and righteousness, not so they could just do the right things, but they might know God and please him. Uh, Again, J.C. Ryle said this. He says, election was never intended to prevent men making a diligent use of all means of grace. On the contrary, The neglect of means is a most suspicious symptom and should make us very doubtful about the state of a man's soul, unquote. 
another way we can misuse this text is to let it fill us with pride. So that we think way too much of ourselves and look down on others. Whether it's the pride of thinking, oh yeah, I understand God's inner workings. Like, no, you don't. You just know he's selected. (laughs) You don't know any of the details. You just know the summary statement. Don't let that fill you with pride. And, And don't let it fill you with pride that he's elected you. Because there wasn't anything in you to elect. He just chose you. You're a trophy of his grace. That's it. And that should not cause pride to swell up in your heart. If you have, you've misunderstood election. You need to go back and study more and read more about God's humbling choice. And another way you can misuse the text is use it as a battering ram. The battering ram of election. You must believe this. Well, no, you actually don't have to believe it. You can actually be saved and not believe in election. Wesley did. You'll see him in heaven. And there are other saints like that. But you miss out on so much when you don't believe it. What do you miss out on? Well, it humbles us. Election should humble you. There's a humbling nature to election because you know there was nothing in yourself. You didn't choose God. God chose you. It wasn't, it wasn't that you put the facts together and made the right decision. No, God did it. Election also comforts and assures us. If God has elected us, if he's begun a work in us, he will complete it. Beloved, if, if election, if salvation was, was up to you choosing God, then you'd be lost. Because at some point you would unchoose God. So would I. I'm no different. If salvation could be lost, we would all be lost. But because God chooses, we can rest assured that he will bring us to, to complete salvation and to glory. And that should comfort us. That should assure us that my holiness, my glorification and holiness is not something that I have to produce. God produces it in me. Yes, I cooperate with him, but he's going to do it. We should also let election give us confidence in evangelism. Far from stifling evangelism, a proper view of election should encourage evangelism. Why? Because you know your efforts aren't futile. The elect are out there, beloved. The full number of the elect are not yet in, or God would bring about the end. Go preach the gospel and let God save and draw the elect. You don't know who they are. So you've got to scatter that seed wide. And we need, we need to be about that business. So election gives us confidence in evangelism. Election should give us courage in the face of evil as we see our, our world change and transform around us to really hate true Christianity. Let it, let it do its hating. Psalm 2 said God sits in the heavens and laughs. Laughs in scorn and righteous scorn. We can be courageous in the face of evil. We don't need politics. Amen. We don't, need it even, we don't even need a government to be favorable to us. We just need our God. And we are on his side. Election also should deepen our love for God. The more we understand about election and our lost state of who we were before Christ should deepen our love for him. And as a result, as a result of understanding how deep his love is for us, it should springboard us into loving him more. And hence, launch us 
into new heights of praise uh, for him, which is really what Paul's intention is. God chose you to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for revealing these truths to us. And I just ask that you would help us to respond rightly to them. I do pray that you would help us to approach election with humility and may the truths of election humble us. May these truths comfort and assure us that you are with us and you will complete what you have begun in our lives. May these truths give us confidence in evangelism, give us courage in the face of evil, and they deepen our love for you. And Lord, may our, our mouths not be silent in the face of election. Lord, you have blessed us in such incredible ways, mind-blowing ways, in ways we can't even comprehend. But you have given us the simple truths that we can understand, and that is that you have chosen us before the foundation of the world. You've chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before you in love. What a marvelous truth. Help us to praise and glorify your name. It's the name of Jesus Christ. We ask these things. Amen.